This is Guns and Butter. I am convinced that the original oldest portions of the Sphinx, what I call the core body, actually go back to the end of the last ice age. As unbelievable as that may seem to some Egyptologists, to some standard archaeologists, I'm convinced that the body of the Sphinx in round numbers goes back to about 10,000 BC, not 2,500 BC. And again, I want to stress one more time, the head on the Sphinx is not the original head. In fact, I think it was a lioness uh, rather than a Sphinx originally. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Robert Schock. Today's show, Robert Schock and Forgotten Civilization. Robert Schock is a tenured faculty member at Boston University. He earned his doctorate in geology and geophysics at Yale University. His research, put forth in his book, Forgotten Civilization, The Role of Solar Outbursts in Our Past and Future, points to the astronomical cause of the demise of antediluvian civilization, as well as the scientific and archaeological evidence that supports his conclusions. He is well known for his work in Egypt, redating the Sphinx back 12,000 years. Initially, he was criticized for his research because there was no evidence of other civilizations dating back that far, until the discovery of the archaeological site of Gobekli Tepe, a very sophisticated version of Stonehenge in southeastern Turkey. Dr. Robert Schock, welcome. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I attended both your presentation and your workshop at Contact in the Desert and was very impressed with the breadth of your research into ancient civilizations. And when I say ancient, I mean extremely ancient. I've just read your book, Forgotten Civilization, The Role of Solar Outbursts in Our Past and Future. That is an overview of your research of the Sphinx, Gobekli Tepe in southeastern Turkey, Easter Island, and what happened to these civilizations, a phenomena that you have named a solar-induced dark age. There is so much material to cover, it's hard to know where to start. Since your archaeological investigations began in Egypt, let's start there. You say that it was the Great Sphinx that was the focus of your interest. Why the Sphinx and not the pyramids? Well, there's a, let's, let's back up a little bit as to how I got involved with this. One of the presentations you saw at Contact in the Desert was my tribute to John Anthony West, the late John Anthony West. He was my friend and colleague for nearly 30 years, and he had worked on the Sphinx, he actually had begun by studying Egypt and going to Egypt. Uh, he called himself a rogue Egyptologist by studying the work of the late Schwaller de Lubitsch, um, R.A. Schwaller de Lubitsch, who died back in 1961, so a very long time ago from sort of a modern perspective. So I never knew Schwaller. I always called John Anthony West West. West did not actually know Schwaller personally, although they overlapped certainly in um, their lifespans. But Schwaller had 
commented that the Sphinx was weathered by water, not by wind and sand. John Anthony West put that together very quickly, that if you're talking about water and the Sphinx sits on the edge of the Sahara Desert, then there's something amiss here. And the thought was that the Sphinx may go back to pre-Sahara times, but he realized that this was a geological question. My PhD is in geology and geophysics. He had a colleague at the time, or a friend, I should say, someone he knew at the time that was at Boston University, actually in the college I was in, an English professor, rhetoric professor. To make a very long story short, we ended up meeting each other through this third party, this professor that we both knew. And uh, John Anthony West got me involved with the Sphinx. So that was the immediate connection. Certainly for most people or for many people, the huge attraction on the Giza Plateau is the Great Pyramid, which is the only wonder of the ancient world that has really survived in any significant form. There are fragments of a couple of the others. But the Great Pyramid is really the one that survived. That's the one where uh, most people you know, are attracted to. They like to go into the Great Pyramid. They like to go into the King's Chamber. They have mystical revelations, should we say, in the King's Chamber. Many people in Napoleon experienced that, according to uh, his firsthand testimony. So yes, the Great Pyramid is a great attraction. And it's something that I'm, that I'm interested in. And I wrote a book called Pyramid Quest some years ago, focused on the Great Pyramid. But the initial introduction for me on the ground was actually the Great Sphinx and the issue of what is the age of the Great Sphinx. And the answer to that question, which is that it goes back thousands of years earlier, really began my journey, really was the beginning of my journey uh, looking at incredibly remote civilization. So it was really a matter of John Anthony West, the Great Sphinx. Also, I want to say that I'm a geologist, and I was always interested in the rocks that the Sphinx is carved from. And I mean that serious, seriously and literally because the, the rocks themselves are limestones from the Eocene period. It just so happened, perhaps coincidentally, maybe not coincidentally in hindsight, that one of my specialties as a graduate student was rocks and the fossils and the time period that the Sphinx is carved from. What I'm trying to say is that the Sphinx is carved out of rocks that are tens of millions of years old. It just so happens it is carved out of those rocks. Those rocks from that period of time were and still are well my specialty. So I was very well uh, trained, should we say, to look at the rocks that the Sphinx is carved out of and evaluate the weathering and erosion of them. So it all seemed to work out. When you were first on site on the Giza Plateau in Egypt, what did your training as a geologist tell you about how the Sphinx had been eroded over the centuries? So, as I was saying, my one of my specialties turned out to be, and it served me well on the Giza Plateau, Eocene rocks, Eocene limestones in particular, and when I first saw the Sphinx, and I described this at the presentation you attended, as I said then, and as I've said to many people over the years now, within the first 30 to 120 seconds, in that time period, when I first saw the Sphinx, there were two things that stood out 
that really struck me. One is that those rocks that the Sphinx is carved from, and more importantly, the walls of the Sphinx enclosure, and I'll come back to that in a second, those rocks have been weathered and eroded by precipitation, by rainfall, by water runoff, and this is incompatible with the Sahara conditions, the hyper-arid desert conditions that we've seen, when I say we, geologists know uh, have occurred on the Giza Plateau for the last 5,000 years. We have a very good climatic, paleoclimatic record of precipitation, temperatures, that type of thing in North Africa. We know when the modern Sahara Desert formed, and I was struck, and it was a, quite a revelation, that what we see on the body of the Sphinx and the walls of the Sphinx enclosure is not compatible with the last 5,000 years of climatic history that we have in that area. Therefore, it must go back to an earlier period. Now, I want to mention two things about that, or a couple of things about that. One if people have not been to Egypt, they often think of the Sphinx from photographs they've seen taken from a nice angle that the Sphinx sits up on the plateau. It actually does not. Only the head was above the ground level of the plateau. And that is the case to this day. When you go and you visit the Sphinx, you see that to carve the body, they actually had to carve down into the limestone bedrock. So they carved down into the limestone bedrock. They took out huge blocks, which they actually assembled as temples, or what are called temples nowadays, in front of the Sphinx and just south of the Sphinx. But this left what's known as the Sphinx ditch, Sphinx quarry, or Sphinx enclosure, and the walls of that show even better than the body of the Sphinx itself, which has been has undergone repairs and that type of thing. The walls show this diagnostic weathering and erosion, what I call rolling, undulating erosion, deep vertical fissures from the uh, rock being weathered away as water ran down the sides of the Sphinx enclosure, picked out relatively um, softer layers. So, it's just textbook geology, geology 101, as some people would say, of precipitation, of weathering and erosion by water runoff, by rainfall. It's very, very striking on the plateau that this is what you see at the Sphinx enclosure. You don't see it elsewhere on the plateau. You see wind and desert weathering and erosion, but not on the Sphinx in the Sphinx enclosure. So so that was really important. The other thing that I noticed immediately within that first half minute to two minutes was that the Sphinx is too... The Sphinx is a magnificent structure. I don't want to say it's not. But the head of the Sphinx is out of proportion to the body. The head is too small for the body. Why? Immediately it came to me because I'm a geologist and I could see that the head is eroded and weathered differently. I said, this is not the original head. It's a recarved head. And when you take a heavily eroded structure like the head of the Sphinx and you recarve it, it gets smaller. That's just logical. You don't put material back. You remove material as you recarve it. So the head is actually too small for the body. 
it's out of proportion. And those are the two things that really struck me immediately when I first saw the Sphinx back in 1990, almost uh, 28 years ago. Well, speaking of the head of the Sphinx, um, you have described it as a dynastic head, that having to do with the dynastic uh, historical period of Egypt. How does traditional archaeology date the age of the Sphinx, and how and why did you embark on a redating of the Great Sphinx of Egypt? Okay, so to put things into a temporal context, timeline, time frame, the traditional dating for the Sphinx, and I should have said this maybe explicitly a few minutes ago, the traditional dating for the Sphinx is 2500 B.C. That is Old Kingdom times, what Egyptologists call Old Kingdom times. It's traditionally dated to the Pharaoh Khafre, also known as Shephron. Depends on how you want to pronounce it. Uh, no one really knows how they pronounced it in ancient times. Khafre is probably closer to their correct pronunciation. But Khafre or Shephron, that, that pharaoh. The classical Egyptologists attribute the Sphinx to the reign of that pharaoh. In fact, they've even said that the face on the Sphinx is the face of Khafre, that pharaoh. And it turns out that the second pyramid, the Sphinx sits absolutely due east of the second pyramid. The second pyramid, which is only very slightly smaller than the Great Pyramid, is generally attributed to Khafre. So the first pyramid, the Great Pyramid, is traditionally attributed to Khufu, also known as Cheops, and then his successor, probable successor, according to the standard story, built the second pyramid, so that's the Khafre pyramid, and also carved the Sphinx due east of the Khafre pyramid, due east of his pyramid, and put his own face on the Sphinx. So that's the traditional story, 2500 B.C., I contend that that is absolutely incorrect. The head is not the original head, as I already said. Also, I don't actually believe that the face on the Sphinx is the face of Khafre. So it's not the original face, even though it's a dynastic face. What's important, as I said, is that the body shows this much different weathering and erosion, which is incompatible with Sahara Desert. The Sahara Desert goes back to at least about 3000 BC, so hundreds of years before the Old Kingdom, hundreds of years before the traditional date of 2500 BC given to the Sphinx by the traditional Egyptologist, by the conventional Egyptologist. And not only must the Sphinx go back to that earlier climatic period, but it has to go back far enough into that climatic period to have accrued, to have collected, if you would, so much weathering and erosion. When you look at the body of the Sphinx and the walls of the Sphinx enclosure, we're talking about over a meter worth of erosion that we can document. And these are fairly good hard limestones. That doesn't happen in a few days or from just a couple of flash 
floods running down the plateau. I also want to point out that it's not from rising Nile floods. That would give a very different and very distinctive geological signature. It is from rainfall, from precipitation, from runoff from above. So you have to take into account that this would not happen over a short period of time. You have to extrapolate back. I'm speaking with geologist and professor Dr. Robert Schock. Today's show, Robert Schock and Forgotten Civilization. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Furthermore, and in addition to the surface analyses I've done over the decades, We've looked at subsurface data using seismic in particular, geophysical technique, where you um, essentially send energy waves or sound waves into the bedrock under the Sphinx. You can look at subsurface mineralogical changes. You can calibrate those. And this has to do with when the surface was first exposed, when the Sphinx was carved. And when I put all the data together at this point, I am convinced that the original oldest portions of the Sphinx, what I call the core body, actually go back to the end of the last ice age. As unbelievable as that may seem to some Egyptologists, to some standard archaeologists, I'm convinced that the body of the Sphinx in round numbers goes back to about 10,000 B.C., not 2,500 B.C. And again, I want to stress one more time, the head on the Sphinx is not the original head. In fact, I think it was a lioness uh, rather than a Sphinx originally. Now, Dr. Schock, didn't you originally think that, well, you did decide that it was probably a lion, but didn't you originally think that it was a male lion? Yes, in fact, for very good reasons. But I admit when I feel I'm, I'm wrong, and I think the evidence now indicates something else. So let me elaborate. The Sphinx itself, in about 10,000 B.C., so based on other evidence, I would put it back to 10,000 B.C., confirming that or corroborating is really the term I would use in a more technical sense. So supporting that it may go back to 10,000 B.C., the Sphinx sits facing due east. It sits and faces absolutely due east. Now, on the vernal equinox, when the sun is rising that morning, the sun was in Leo. This is representative of what's known as the age of Leo. Today, when the sun rises, it's at the very... um, it's basically just between Pisces and Aquarius. People may be familiar with precessional ages. The sun changes its position in the sky, if you would, through the seasons. It's hard to explain this easily in a conversation without diagrams, but essentially on the vernal equinox, the sun rises in one of the constellations. So the constellations behind the sun on the vernal equinox, this changes very, very slowly over the course of time. It precesses. So 2,000 years ago, the sun began to rise on the vernal equinox in Pisces. And for the last 2,000 plus, or about 2,000 years, it's been in Pisces on the vernal equinox. It's now at the other end of Pisces and slowly moving towards Aquarius on the vernal equinox. And people may have heard the 
the famous song, I guess back in the 60s or something, The Dawning of the Age of Aquarius. Yes, the sun is moving into Aquarius on the vernal equinox. Now, if you extrapolate back thousands and thousands of years, back in 10,000 B.C. on the vernal equinox, the sun was in Leo. So the Sphinx sat looking at the eastern horizon on the vernal equinox and saw the sun, if you would, saw the sun in Leo on the vernal equinox, marking the age of Leo. So my suggestion originally, 25 plus years ago, over a quarter century ago, was that maybe the Sphinx was originally a lion, perhaps even representing Leo, the male lion, looking at itself in the sky. We now have evidence, however, that it was a female lion, a lioness, maybe the consort, if you would, of the male lion in the sky, looking at the male lion, looking at the constellation Leo on the vernal equinox, 10,000 BC. And the reason I now believe very strongly that it was a female lioness uh, is because we have hieroglyphic evidence saying that this was found just in the last couple of years discovered when i say found discovered the statue that it was discovered on has been known for a very long time but it was a strange hieroglyphic inscription that no one really had any good interpretation for the Egyptologists didn't know what to make of it etc and my colleague dr manu safesadeh first interpreted it as representing or alluding to what we now call the Sphinx, but at that time the Sphinx was the goddess who took a lioness form, so the goddess Mehit, who took the form of a lioness and guarded an archive underneath her, and we have inscriptions stating this that go back 500 plus years before the time when the Egyptologists even consider the Sphinx to have been carved, to have existed. So we have not only evidence that the Sphinx itself is older, we have the textual evidence, the hieroglyphic evidence, that the Sphinx was not a Sphinx originally, but a lioness. And that hieroglyphic evidence goes back hundreds of years earlier than the date that the Egyptologists actually give for the original carving of the Sphinx. And at that time... The ancient Egyptians in 3000 BC were talking about the Sphinx, what we now think of the Sphinx, they call it the lioness Mehet. They were talking about it as being a very, very ancient structure. So it all seems to tie together. It all makes sense. And I think this is incredibly important and exciting because I have been talking about now since 1990, honestly, first discussed it absolutely publicly when I presented it in 1991 at the um, Geological Society of America annual conference, my work on redating the Sphinx. And I've been talking about this for a very long time. The Egyptologists have had all kinds of, uh, should we say, critical, nasty comments about it. I don't mean to sound the wrong way, but one of their big criticisms was, well, if the Sphinx is old, so old, why isn't there any textual evidence? Why aren't there any inscriptions talking about it among the early hieroglyphs? And uh, this was always a point of contention 
But it turns out it wasn't recognized because we didn't know what to look for until we've now put it all together, that it wasn't the Sphinx to look for, it was Mehet to look for. Uh, I would also point out that the Egyptologists, even as they criticized me for not having hieroglyphic references to the Sphinx at an early period, they themselves were saying that the Sphinx was 2500 BC, yet the best hieroglyphic evidence they had for mention of the Sphinx dated generally to about a thousand years later. So even they acknowledged that there was a gap in time between the Sphinx having been carved and anything being written about it. But that's all now changed because we now know what to look for in the text. You mentioned the vernal equinox, and I just wanted to note that, of course, that happens. We're talking about uh, about March 20th every year. Between the 20 and 22nd, somewhere in there. It, it varies, actually, just a little bit from year to year. And that, of course, is using our current calendar. And then, of course, you also mentioned the precession of the equinoxes, which, as you've said, is very difficult to explain. That's a 26,000-year cycle, isn't it? Yeah, precession of the equinoxes is about 26,000-year cycle. And one way for people to think of it is people know how the sun goes through the different parts of the sky throughout the course of the year. So people talk about when they were born or they, you know, what their sign is, technically their sun sign, and that more or less correlates, and I don't want to get into a lot of detail here, but correlates with where the sun is in the sky when they were born, because it goes through the different signs of the zodiac throughout the course of a year, but it also precesses relative to the vernal equinox backwards. It goes the other way around uh, during the course of about 26,000 years. This is sometimes therefore known as the great year. So a, quote, year of the sun going through the sky relative to the point of the vernal equinox, but taking about 26,000 years. It's also sometimes uh, referred to as the Platonic year. And it was acknowledged by the ancients, certainly the classical ancients. They talked about the ages. They uh, were aware of precession. And what we found now is that people, even at the end of the last ice age, were aware of precession. We now know that they were reorienting their sacred sites relative to the stars and the sun and apparently acknowledging that things were changing in the cosmos, changing in the sky uh, according to precession. And it's a very, very slow cycle. Uh, precession changes the aspect of the sky by about one degree every 72 years. So one degree up in the sky to see that the sun has changed by one degree on the vernal equinox in 72 years is almost imperceptible or basically imperceptible with naked eye for most people. So the only way you can really judge this, really see this, and be aware of it is if you have records that are being maintained over a very, very long period of time. And it turns out the ancients were doing that. They were maintaining records over a long period of time. I'm speaking with geologist and professor Dr. Robert Schock. Today's show, Robert Schock and Forgotten Civilization. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You've mentioned that you conducted underground seismic data 
in the area of the Sphinx, and that helped you redate the Sphinx. What else did this seismic data reveal? Yeah, the seismic data, and I want to be clear about this as I talk about it, the seismic data, which was collected by uh, Dr. Thomas DeBecki, a geophysicist, and myself in the early 90s, we got permission, and I'm now working on hopefully getting permission again to go back to Egypt to continue the geophysical studies. But we collected seismic data around the body of the Sphinx. What we did is we took a sledgehammer, pounded on a steel plate to simplify things, you know, to describe it in a simple manner. That generated sound waves or energy waves, same thing in this case, that penetrated down into the bedrock, essentially bounced off of different layers of rock and came back up. What I was interested in looking for were subsurface changes that occur once the rock is exposed to the atmosphere. So when you carve out the body of the Sphinx, they were carving into solid bedrock. Once they exposed the floor, once the floor was exposed around the Sphinx, you start having these subsurface mineralogical changes taking place. And if you think about it, it's quite logical. As the changes go deeper, 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 that indicates longer and longer periods of time since the surface was exposed. So how deep the changes went, I could use that to calibrate how long ago the original Sphinx was carved. And that was my primary objective. It was very successful in hindsight. We collected data to that effect. We found that around the core body of the Sphinx on three sides, it weathered down. It had these mineralogical changes down to a couple of meters, two, two and a half meters in some cases. At the rear, we found that there was about half as much in terms of subsurface changes. When we calibrated that, that correlated with Old Kingdom times, 4,500 years ago, and the other three sides, when you calibrate it correctly, and I talk about this in um, my publications, when you calibrate it correctly, it puts the Sphinx back to about 10,000 or so BC, as I was discussing before. So it's actually, in my opinion, about the most powerful piece of evidence, single piece of evidence, and all the other evidence corroborates this, that the core body, the oldest portions, go back to that very early period. I also want to point out that what we found is the rear was not fully carved out, as we see it today in the very ancient, ancient period. They, quote, completed the body or they carved it out further during Old Kingdom times. So not only did they recarve the head, they did some recarving and further carving on the rump of the Sphinx. Originally, when the Sphinx was facing the vernal equinox in the age of Leo, the rump or the rear of the Sphinx was still attached to the bedrock. So the rump was attached to the bedrock, which gave the impression that the Sphinx was emerging from the bedrock. Interestingly, Leo seemed to emerge from the horizon with at one point the rump of Leo still being on the horizon, even as the body is sort of arched and pointing upward. So 
that again suggests to me that they were very, very aware of the constellation Leo in the sky on the vernal equinox, that this further corroborates their recognition of the age of Leo and having carved the Sphinx at that time. But again, as I said before, we now know it was a lioness, maybe the consort or companion of the lion in the sky, Leo. So that was one thing. The second thing that we found, which you're probably driving at, is that unexpectedly to us, completely unexpectedly, we found some various cavities and chambers under the Sphinx when we were doing the seismic work. We were able to model what's under the Sphinx, not just mineralogical changes and weathering rates, that type of thing, but we actually found some cavities under the Sphinx. We found one under the left rump, and we did not know about that. It turned out the Egyptologists already knew there was a cavity there, so that was good confirmation that our analysis was working properly, that our methods were reliable, because we found something that was unknown to us, but the Egyptologists already knew about, and that's that there's a cavity under the left rump, under the rump of the Sphinx. It turns out that's probably a late period. When I say late period, maybe it's two or 2,500 years old. Maybe someone was looking for buried treasure, that type of thing. There is an opening to it along the side of the Sphinx. If you remove some limestone blocks, you can get into it. Uh, nothing, I, should, I don't want to downplay it, but not super significant when it comes right down to it. What we found, however, that no one knew about definitively was we found a major chamber under the left paw of the Sphinx. This is very rectangular on the seismic analysis. I mean, if you look at the raw data, a lot of average person would say it doesn't look as impressive as it does to a geophysicist who knows what they're looking at. But we found this chamber under the left paw of the Sphinx. This is significant in hindsight for a couple of reasons. Methit in the text was a guardian of a chamber or an archive. I now am putting this together, and I believe, we believe, that the archive she guarded was actually in this chamber under the left paw. Uh, so we've known about this chamber for a long time, since the early 1990s, but didn't put it together until just the last two years with the evidence of the hieroglyphs that have just been discovered. The other thing about this chamber, which is very embarrassing to me at the time, I now have a better time dealing with it, is that the psychic, American psychic Edgar Casey said there would be a hall of records or an archive in the vicinity of the paws of the Sphinx, and I have been told, including by his one of his late sons, that uh, we found, I found the archive, the chamber, the hall of records that he predicted, you know, Edgar Casey had predicted back in the 1930s or so that there was this chamber or hall of records near the uh, Sphinx or under the Sphinx and that our work had discovered it. So some people think that's very exciting for me as an academic. It wasn't the best news because now my academic colleagues could criticize me for 
confirming, you know, what they see as total nonsense, some crazy psychic out there. In fact, I was even accused by some of my academic colleagues at the time as going over to Egypt to confirm the predictions of a psychic, which was absolute nonsense since I had heard of Edgar Casey just because I'm not ignorant of such things in popular culture, but I had no clue at the time when we found the chamber that he had made any predictions about chambers being close to the Sphinx or anything like that. We simply found it. And if you want to just dismiss his coincidence that he had predicted that, that's fine with me. Other people have said, no, he was spot on and knew what he was predicting. I mean, it doesn't make any difference to me. Ultimately, I stand by the data. We found it, and that's that. It's never been explored to my knowledge. That's something that I would still like to do. The Egyptians are very, very hesitant to uh, excavate or even to drill into such a, such a thing. And in fact, some of them like to deny that it's there, but the data is good. Now... Also, didn't the original hieroglyph that has been discovered of the lioness depict some sort of a key on her back? Yes, in fact, the lioness methit, which is now the Sphinx, so we've established that, I believe that the lioness methit was recarved, the head was recarved into the human head to turn it into a Sphinx. She originally, in the hieroglyphs at least, in the hieroglyphs, she has essentially a key coming out of her back, what is uh, literally a key for a lock and something that uh, uh, Dr. Saifzadeh, Manu Saifzadeh, has been able to uh, demonstrate is physically he made a key like that and he manufactured a lock that it would fit, you know, using old kingdom, or I shouldn't say old kingdom, but ancient techniques that, uh, this really is a key. It doesn't look like a modern key to everyone's eye, but it's a key that arose out of her back, indicating that she was a guardian holder of the key, if you would, to this archive. And also in some of the hieroglyphs uh, that go back to the earliest period in some of what they call sealings, or they're basically seal impressions, she is shown not only with this key, but she is shown standing over or sitting over, if you would, a facade. Well, that looks like a building facade, but what we interpret it as is not a building above ground, but actually the chambers underneath her. And we predict that once we are able to investigate or someone is able to investigate that chamber, it may in fact have... Um, it may be several smaller chambers together, but it will at least have some resemblance to what we see in the hieroglyphic inscription. So we've got the lioness met it. We've got the key that she's holding, indicating she's the guardian of it. And we've got the chamber underneath her, indicating that's the chamber where the archives are held. And this is all in the hieroglyphic inscriptions, and I believe fits very well with the real physical data we have on the ground with the Great Sphinx. Now, you dating the Sphinx back to the end of the Ice Age, which was 9,700 
B.C., about 12,000 years ago, okay? Correct. So I understand that there's now evidence and speculation as to how the Ice Age ended uh, regarding a major solar outburst or outbursts. If the Sphinx dates back to the end of the Ice Age, how does that evidence work in with your geological evidence of torrential rains hitting the Sphinx and the Sphinx enclosure, which you have shown? Yeah, I I think actually that the torrential rains, I'm now of the opinion that a lot of the weathering and erosion that we see on the Sphinx and more importantly on the walls of the Sphinx enclosure, because what you have to remember is the Sphinx is a huge statue from a human perspective, but it's not very big in terms of what we would call catchment area, more or less to catch rainfall and then have it run off the sides. It's not, you know, it's the back of the Sphinx is only so big. I've walked on it. It's just, you know, relatively small in terms of an area or basin to catch water and then have it run off the sides. But the walls of the Sphinx enclosure, the catchment area for for those walls originally was the rest of the plateau, uh, which, you know, is essentially north and west of the Sphinx enclosure. So that provided a huge catchment area at the end of the last ice age. And at the end of the last ice age, we had torrential rains. We know that geologically now putting everything together, because to make a longer story short, what ended the last ice age, I'm convinced, based on the evidence, and of course I talk about this in my book, Forgotten Civilization, but at the end of the last ice age, what ended it was a huge, what I call a solar outburst, a huge solar event. The sun erupted. It may have been one eruption and smaller eruptions afterwards or a series of you know fairly large eruptions, but it was a solar outburst. And this through what's known as plasma, fast-moving, electrically charged particles at the Earth. It hit the Earth's magnetosphere. It penetrated down to the surface. It caused all kinds of havoc and catastrophe on the surface of the Earth. I'm speaking with geologist and professor Dr. Robert Schock. Today's show, Robert Schock and Forgotten Civilization. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. One thing it did was it literally melted glaciers. So you had glaciers being melted. One way to describe it very vividly is to think of huge lightning bolts, not atmospheric lightning, but basically electrical strikes hitting the surface of the earth in places, especially at high latitudes. These would come into the poles. Well, what's happening at the poles is the end of the last ice age. That's where a lot of the glacial material is. Hitting that with these, think of huge lightning strikes, would essentially evaporate instantaneously, evaporate instantaneously, melt and evaporate ice caps, huge amounts of water. Other places, because of the changing climate so dramatically, so rapidly, and again, think of lightning or fire hitting water, even liquid water bodies. You evaporate water. So one thing that happened at the end of the last ice age and all this turmoil was 
massive amounts of water being evaporated, being put into the atmosphere. The atmosphere can only hold so much water at a time. It becomes saturated. So what happens? You have torrential rains associated with what was happening at the end of the last ice age. So you had torrential rains. You had flash floods. Uh, It would have been, you know, torrents and torrents of water coming down in places just, you know, it's hard to describe how it was. If people watch the news sometimes and they see on the um, nightly news in some part of the world where there's flash floods, they get a very vague idea of what was happening at the end of the last ice age. I mean, flash floods can be incredibly destructive. So you have flooding worldwide. Plus, of course, along the coast, you have rising sea levels as you're melting all this ice, et cetera, et cetera. So I think... One thing that was happening is that a lot of the weathering and erosion that we see to this day on the Sphinx and the Sphinx enclosure actually was initiated at the end of the last ice age. A lot of it is a remnant of the last ice age. And of course, it's weathered and eroded since then. Uh, But a good chunk of it goes back to the end of the last ice age. Do we have an idea of what the weather or the climate or the terrain would have been like in Egypt around the Giza Plateau before the end of the Ice Age. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It was it was not ice. Sometimes people think Ice Age, that means the whole world was covered with ice. No, not at all. Only high latitudes. And in North America, it actually came down fairly to some of the, I won't call them lower latitudes, but mid-latitudes. So, for instance, I teach at Boston University. I'm taking this phone call from Boston, where I am sitting now at the height of the last ice age. There were, you know, several kilometers of of uh, ice where I'm sitting. But when you go to Giza, where you go to where the Sphinx was at that time, there was no ice around. It would have been a very um, equitable climate. It would have been um, uh, very lush. I don't want to call it tropical, but just lush, probably lush, temperate climate with lots of plants and animals, that type of thing. It would have been very, very nice uh, uh, for a human habitation, for the fauna and the flora, not extremely cold as you have in higher latitudes and not the desert conditions that you have there now. So it would have been a a very um, lush, fertile area from climatic fauna and flora and human point of view. Yes, that's very interesting because we're also used to seeing the pyramids and the sphinx in this barren desert that we just tend to assume that that's the way it always was. No, it wasn't at all. Not at all. How was your controversial redating of the Great Sphinx of Egypt corroborated by new discoveries in southeastern Turkey? It all changed some years later when in southeastern Turkey, another site completely independent of Egypt and the Sphinx and the pyramids and the Giza Plateau, another site was found going back to the same early time period, just as sophisticated, sophisticated in a different way, more or less we don't have a huge sphinx carved there, 
but just as sophisticated and also going back to the end of the last ice age to approximately 10,000 plus BC. And this is the site of Gebekli Tepe in southeastern Turkey, just north of the Syrian border. But there we have incredibly beautifully carved monolithic stone pillars that are arranged in circles, sort of Stonehenge-like, but much more sophisticated with beautiful carvings on them. And this was being excavated by the late Klaus Schmidt of the German Archaeological Institute. He has, or he had, I should say, since he's passed away prematurely, he had, and it still exists, there is great stratigraphy for it, more or less looking at the rock layers and how you correlate them. There are radiocarbon dates. This is a site that was preserved in incredibly good condition before it was excavated by the archaeologists, unlike the Sphinx, which has been modified and changed and used and reused for thousands of years. So it's not as pristine as we have in southeastern Turkey with the site of Gebekli Tepe. But we have just as sophisticated a site and it also goes back to this early, early, early period, uh, back to 10,000 plus BC. So it's incredible confirmation that yes, we have true civilization. We have incredibly sophisticated culture at the end of the last ice age before the catastrophes that destroyed uh, those civilizations, those cultures at the end of the last ice age. And threw humanity into um, a dark age, what I now call Siddha, solar-induced dark age, that began with the collapse of these advanced civilizations at the end of the last ice age with the catastrophe that ended the last ice age and basically devastated the um, advanced societies of the time. So we now have independent evidence, most notably at Gebekli Tepe. You write that Gobekli Tepe resides between the northern portions of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It is a bleak, barren desert landscape now, but 12,000 years ago it was a hunter-gatherer's paradise. Because we're on radio and we don't have visuals, could you describe the incredibly sophisticated and ancient ruins at Gobekli Tepe? Yeah, it's in southeastern Turkey, just over the border from Syria. When you're at Gebekli Tepe, if you stand on the northern portion of the site and look south and you know what you're looking at, you can actually see Syria. But Gebekli Tepe, just like the Giza Plateau and where the Sphinx is located, is now in an area that is pretty barren. It's desert, that type of thing, not as bleak as actually the Sahara Desert where the Sphinx is located, but it's not any kind of hunter-gatherer paradise. Uh, Back at the end of the last ice age, it was. And again, this ties in with climatic changes. Where Quebecli Tepe is located was not covered with glaciers at the time. It was um, an area that was uh, much more fertile, much more temperate than it is now. There was lots of fauna uh, there, beautiful flora for the animals to graze on. There were people there, obviously, 
building Gebekli Tepe. So to describe it, what we have there are stone circles. They're usually referred to as stone circles, but these are made out of huge pillars. Uh, when I say huge, they can weigh 10, 15 tons or more each. They can be, I want to say, five meters tall in some cases, and they are carved out of limestone. They are beautifully carved with nice straight edges. Some of them have reliefs of animals on them. Some of them have arms and hands and belts, so they're anthropomorphic. Uh, there are statues and carvings associated with Gebekli Tepe. They're now in the museum in Urfa, Urfa, Turkey, which is about half hour drive from the actual site. And Urfa itself is an incredibly uh, ancient city maybe one of the oldest inhabited cities on Earth, continuously inhabited cities, because even in Urfa, when they dig for maybe a new apartment complex or for a new um, road or underground garage, they often find archaeological remains even going back 12,000 years. So, But getting back to Gebekli Tepe, part of my point is that what we have at Gebekli Tepe may simply be the tip of the proverbial iceberg of what occurred in that region 10,000 plus BC. So at Gebekli Tepe, we have these incredible stone pillars that are arranged in circles, very Stonehenge-like. The best analogy for many people is to think of Stonehenge, but then think of Stonehenge and realize Stonehenge the pillars are very crude, rough-hewn stone. At Gebekli Tepe, they're beautifully, smoothly carved with animal reliefs on some of them. Uh, one has a very famous, it's usually considered a little um, feline that is three-dimensional, emerging from the pillar, from the edge of the pillar. I have spoken off the record to archaeologists who do not want to be mentioned and would deny it if I did mention them. I've spoken off the record to archaeologists and asked them, well, if you found one of these Gebekli Tepe pillars in isolation with no way to date it, and you just had to instinctually date it based on the level of sophistication, the style and finesse of the carving, how old do you think it would be? One said 1000 BC to me. Another one said 600 BC to me, not 9000, 10,000 BC. Uh, so it's literally, from a conventional point of view, out of place temporally, looks like it should be much, much later, three or 4,000 years old, not... 12,000 years old. Uh, just just an incredible sight from that point of view. And I want to reemphasize that the dating is absolutely good. No one is questioning the dating on it because of the radiocarbon dating and the, the other work that has been done on it by the German Archaeological Institute and the uh, official government uh, authorities and museum staff of uh, the Turkish government and the Urfa Museum, etc. Everything is good on it. It's just an incredible site. And you don't have, as Klaus Schmidt said, the primary excavator of it before he died, 
he said, you have Gobekli Tepe, it's just there. And then even a few centuries to a millennia afterwards, you have nothing like it. Well, this is because that civilization, I'm saying this is because that civilization collapsed at the end of the last ice age. Uh, They went into a dark period, the solar-induced dark age. So every everything fell apart, if you would. But uh, you have the remnants of uh, that early civilization there, just like you have the remnants of early civilization before the end of the last ice age in what we now call the Great Sphinx and its associate temples. Dr. Robert Schock, thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. I've been speaking with Dr. Robert Schock. Today's show has been Robert Schock and Forgotten Civilization. Robert Schock is a tenured faculty member at Boston University. He earned his doctorate in geology and geophysics at Yale University. He is the author of Forgotten Civilization, The Role of Solar Outbursts in Our Past and Future, and with Robert Baval, Origins of the Sphinx, Celestial Guardian of Pre-Pharaonic Civilization, among many other books. As a member of the Organization for the Research of Ancient Cultures, a nonprofit that raises funds for more research, he co-leads tours to Egypt with his colleague, Egyptian Egyptologist Mohammed Ibrahim. Their next tour will be in June 2019. For more information, please visit robertshock.com. That's robertshock.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio.